Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. On Tuesday, President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu stood together on a dais at the White House to announce the Trump plan for resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The plan, which proposes to create a Palestinian state on about 70 percent of the West Bank, plus Gaza and two additional chunks of land in the Negev Desert, brings many new ideas to the table. Are those ideas good or bad? Both major political parties in Israel welcomed the plan, as did, in more reserved terms, several key Arab states. So we can say that they think the ideas have some merit. The Palestinians, on the other hand, rejected the proposal forcefully. Suffice to say, they don't like the new ideas. Joining us now to break down the plan and what it means for the future of Israel is Dr. Anat Wilf, a former member of Knesset from the Labor Party and a leading advocate for Israel on the world stage. Enat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, when President Trump announced the U.S. proposal on Tuesday, some analysts acted like it was a catastrophe and the end of the world, while others, mostly on the right, sounded triumphal notes and acted like it was the end of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What is your reaction to the plan? My reaction to the Trump proposal, at least in Israel, is that it has actually managed to put together a vast Israeli center, which probably encompasses in Israel about 70 to 80 percent of Israeli Jews, who are found in the place where they understand that we will not have all of the land and the Palestinians need have some measure of self-control on the land, but also an understanding that it will not be anymore the vision of the 90s or the 2000s of a full sovereign Palestinian state that could threaten Israel's security. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who haven't had a chance to read the lengthy document, what are some of the facets of the plan that you would say are particularly likable and what, if anything, makes you nervous? So the most important aspect of the plan by far is not what's in it, it's the way that it was received and supported, even if it's just in general terms, expressing hope, saying that it's a good basis, by Arab countries. Hmm. This is truly uh, a first, to have this kind of support that for a plan that enjoys broad support among Israelis, that is actually tremendous and uh, shows quite a bit of advance. In many ways, you could say that in the future, this might prove to be not an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, but actually an Israeli-Arab peace plan, a plan that will enable Arab countries to grow closer with Israel, to have more normalized, warmer relationships. So that, I think, is the biggest achievement already. The other elements in the plan which are important is that it does have a clear measure of concern for Israel, security, understanding the facts on the ground, and having a roadmap for Palestinians to attain statehood, but in a way that would no longer threaten Israeli security. 
the thing about the plan also, which is valuable for many Israelis, certainly, is that it parts with the dynamic that has been at play for at least two decades, that every time that the Palestinians say no, they get a better offer. Hmm. This is in many ways the first time that the Palestinians are getting an offer which is less than what they received in 2008 by Ehud Olmert, the prime minister of Israel at the time, in 2000 by Ehud Barak, the prime minister of Israel at the time. So rather than the dynamic that says, okay, Palestinians can always say no, offer nothing of their own, and can always expect Israel and the West to be more forthcoming with an even better proposal, that dynamic has basically come to an end with this proposal. Just to go back to what you were saying a moment ago about the Arab states, I tried to kind of do a close reading of some of those statements from places like uh, Egypt, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. And what it looked like they were saying to me was they certainly weren't pushing back against the plan, rejecting the plan, objecting to any specific parts of the plan. But what they seemed to be accepting was not the plan itself, but more urging a return to direct face-to-face negotiations. Did I miss something or was that more of what they were saying? You are correct that none of the Arab countries are endorsing the plan in a kind of take it or leave it manner of saying, okay, Palestinians, this is the best you're ever going to get, take it. But the mere fact that they're endorsing it, first of all, by physically being present with some of the ambassadors, uh, by sending these declarations, it already means that they're parting with Palestinian rejectionism. Hmm. This is a very strong indication that certain Arab countries and It also means that perhaps some of their publics, because they wouldn't go too far away from where their public is, have had it, to be blunt, have Mm. had it with decades of Palestinian rejectionism, with virulent anti-Zionism, and are basically saying, let's move on, let's move forward. This is a good basis to start from, and let's negotiate. The Palestinians are not saying that. So for the first time, you're seeing Arab countries voicing a view, even when you're saying it's very general, please return to negotiations, which is different from the Palestinian view, because the Palestinians are not saying, oh, this is a good basis for negotiations. They're saying days of rage, uh, reject this plan outright. In the past, Palestinians could go to the Arab League and get full, unanimous Arab League endorsement that says, this is a terrible idea. They're not going to get it this time. Some Arab countries are basically saying that they're not going to continue to give this full backing to Palestinian rejectionism. And this is very big news. The messaging has always been, you know, for for years uh, now, Prime Minister Netanyahu and others in the Israeli kind of political orbit have talked about perhaps having an economic peace with the Arab world or even saying that we are now in, that Israel is now in an economic peace with the Arab world that will predate any kind of political settlement with the Palestinians and that, in fact, the former could lead to the latter. Um, There's always been pushback to that in the Arab world. Are, Are you saying that you think that that is seriously, you know, no longer operative? that the Arab world really would seek out and embrace peace with Israel, um, even in the absence of what could be called a a just settlement for the Palestinians? What we are seeing in the Arab world, these are first steps. And in many ways, they're the outcome of the Arab Spring. 
we're beginning to see the impact of the fact that throughout the instability, uh, Israel remains stable. Arab countries realize that Israel is in the region, unlike America, which, you know, during the President Obama's years uh, announced that it would be pivoting to Asia. Uh, Israel cannot pivot. Uh, Israel is in the Middle East. It has proven itself in during a very unstable period in the Arab world as a very stable country with the threat that some Arab countries view uh, from Iran. They view Israel as an ally. So a lot of these interests are coming together for Arab countries to basically say, we want a plan. I mean, this is very much in their interest as well. We want a plan where we can continue to appear to support the Palestinians, but also where we have much more wiggle room to move on and normalize and warm relationships with Israel. So it's very much in their interest, and we're seeing the coming together of several historical processes, the Arab Spring, the strength and stability of Israel uh, as an ally, and the Iran as a threat perceived by other Arab countries. And for that, they're no longer willing to be hijacked by the Palestinians against their interests. Mm-hmm. Returning to concrete you know, thoughts about the plan specifically, Israeli political thinker Micha Goodman had a fascinating piece in the New York Times yesterday in which he said, basically, look, let's be real. This plan as written can't end the conflict. But he said it's still valuable because it could transform the conflict. He said that if Israel and the Palestinians were to you know, rejigger their current borders in accordance with this plan, that would give the Palestinians what he calls, quote, almost full sovereignty, and that then future negotiations to actually end the conflict um, could take place between disputing neighbors rather than between an occupier and an occupied population. What do you think of his analysis? So this is definitely an idea that appeals to Israelis. Israelis look at the map. Generally, most Israelis, except very much on the fringes, Uh, given the last 25 years, has given up on the soaring vision of the 1990s of peace, handshakes on manicured lawns, rainbows and doves in the background, a peace to end all conflict. Israelis now understand that it's going to be much more muddled and gray and that we basically need to improve things, even if we don't get to that beautiful peace at the end of the rainbow. So for Israelis, it's appealing. It's appealing the idea that we can shrink the idea of being an occupying force while retaining military uh, control and the ability to maintain our security, that Palestinians will have greater and greater control over their lives. Certainly for someone like me who comes more from the political left, the idea that the settlement project, and especially the enmeshment of certain settlements inside the West Bank is now being basically placed with a certain limit. So a limit is placed. I would have liked a greater limit coming from the, uh, from the left, but still the fact that a limit is being placed in certain territories are clearly earmarked for Palestinians. This does take us in the right direction In many ways, I look at the plan not as a plan for peace. Here I agree. The plan will not bring peace 
with the Palestinians. It might bring with the Arabs, but not with the Palestinians, because the Palestinians still tragically remain wedded to a vision of from the river to the sea, uh, through this idea that they have a right of return. I discuss it in my upcoming book, The War of Return. So they're not ready to say yes to anything which is short of the suicide of Zionism. But I look at the plan and say this is a plan to actually save Zionism. It puts a limit on the enmeshment idea of the settlements. It separates us gradually from the Palestinians. It minimizes the occupation to the point that we at least will view ourselves no longer as occupiers. I'm sure the Palestinians will continue to say that we are, but I think for us and perhaps for many more countries, it will have less and less credibility. Mm-hmm. Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, a friend of this podcast uh, and a scholar at the Brookings Institution, uh, wrote in the forward yesterday that one way in which the plan falls short from her perspective is that Israel has always rejected any imposed solutions, whether from multilateral bodies like the UN or even from close friends like the US. She cites in particular Menachem Begin's rejection of the Reagan plan in 1982 as a specific Mm -hmm. example. Do you think, Einat, that there's a danger in Prime Minister Netanyahu saying that it's okay for the US to dictate terms this time just because he happens to like the president? It's far deeper than that. This is a plan that reflects the broad Israeli consensus. It's a consensus that has been formed over the last 20, 25 years, where both people on the right and the left understood through harsh experience the repeated Palestinian rejection of peace offers, the suicide uh, bombing campaign of the Second Intifada, uh, the disengagement, that neither the left nor the right will achieve their complete vision. So Israel now has uh, a very broad consensus. 70, 80 percent of Jewish Israelis are pretty much at the point of where the Trump plan is. So it's not perceived as an imposed solution. An imposed solution was always perceived as something that is not in our interest. That was the idea of imposed, something where the United States uses its power to force Israel to concede something that Israel views as dangerous or against its interests. That's not the case right now. This plan is viewed by the vast majority of Israelis. This is why Blue and White basically endorsed it, the Likud endorsed it. This is where the vast majority of the Israeli center is. They're saying this is something that is in our interest. So people do not view it as imposed. Mm -hmm. Immediately after the plan was released and just the hours following, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Defense Minister Bennett both announced that Israel would immediately and unilaterally annex the Jordan Valley and all Israeli settlements in the West Bank next week. Now, more recent news reports indicate that that's moving a bit slower than a matter of days, but that certainly after the election at the beginning of March, that annexation is very much on the table. It may even be the, you know, the main course on the table. So let's say that someone says, okay, fine, no objection to the plan. There have been any number of plans. Why shouldn't President Trump have one? And if Israel likes it, why shouldn't Israel welcome it? But what is really concerning, someone might say, 
is this announcement that even though the Palestinians are opposed to the plan, Israel would go ahead and unilaterally annex these huge swaths of the West Bank to Israel. What would you say, now? what would you say to that person who welcomes any attempt to jumpstart negotiations, who doesn't write off the plan out of hand, but who is desperately worried about the impact of unilateral annexation? So generally, this is a view that I would support. Uh, I do think that if Israel, uh, as Israel accepts and supports the plan, uh, it should adopt all of it. And in that sense, my recommendation or my tendency, again, coming more to the left, would be that if Israel does annex, and I'm not opposed to annexation per se, it will also make it clear that this is it that it is basically adopting the map and the areas in the map that are designated for a Palestinian state will remain so. And in that sense, Israel will be declaring uh, an end to the settlement project. It will basically say we're annexing the part in the map that is slated to be Israeli and we are renouncing the claim to everything else. Hmm. That would be something that I, that's what I would like to see. From what I'm hearing right now, I understand there are certain um, kind of debates within the administration, especially from Friedman, who's pushing more to annexation, and Kushner, who's not. Uh, but I think the view is going to be that it should be more of a package, and that if Israel annexes, it should be with a declaration that it accepts the map and thereby does not touch the areas that are designated for a Palestinian state. I think that would be the much better way to go forward. Einat, you are, as always, a fascinating and elucidating thinker. Thank you so much for joining us. And where can our listeners go to pre-order your upcoming book, The War of Return? So the book will be out in April, and it is available on each and every book site from Amazon to Barnes & Noble. and it's already available for pre-order. All right, folks. So if you liked what you heard today, run to Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore and look out for uh, Anat's upcoming book, The War of Return. And Anat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Last week, His Excellency Dr. Mohammed Al-Issa, Secretary General of the Mecca-based Muslim World League, partnered with AJC to lead the senior-most Muslim delegation ever on a tour of Auschwitz. One of my colleagues who joined him there was Rabbi David Rosen, AJC's Jerusalem-based Director of International Interreligious Affairs. Rabbi Rosen joins us now to share the importance of that trip. David, thank you so much for joining us. A great pleasure, Sefi. Now, let's start off with who is Muhammad al-Issa, the head of the Muslim World League, and who were the other leaders that made up this important delegation? Well, allow me to begin with talking about what is the Muslim World League, because in a way, it's the revolution that's taken place within that body that is personified in the person of Dr. Al-Issa. The Muslim World League uh, was established by Saudi Arabia as an agency to be essentially the service and propagation of its own Muslim ideology around the world. 
And traditionally, you know, that has been a rather hard line, often the word Wahhabist is used, approach that has been insular and often even derogatory towards other religions. It hadn't historically been involved in the whole area of interreligious dialogue. It was actually the previous king of Saudi Arabia, King Abdullah, who started to move to bring Saudi Arabia into the world of interreligious dialogue. And that's how I became involved in these initiatives. And that's how I met Dr. Alisa. At the time before uh, King Abdullah died, or I should say within King Abdullah's cabinet at the time, Dr. Alisa was the Minister of Justice. So he was already close to the previous regime. Under the new leadership of King Salman and of his son Mohammed bin Salman, Alisa was appointed as the Secretary General of the Muslim World League. So basically, we could say that's the highest bureaucratic position in the Arab Muslim world, indeed in the Muslim world at large. And he's brought in a completely different breath of fresh air with regards to this organization, opening it up to the world at large, disavowing radicalism or insular extremism and seeking to articulate a a voice of which they now wish to say, I would think we would describe this as a bit of revisionism, as what they claim is the original, more moderate approach that Saudi Arabia that was actually compromised by political factors that led them to become insular. So he is a real force for a more a light and voice of Islam coming from, nevertheless, a very conservative institution in the bedrock of traditional Islam. Mm-hmm. So that's Alisa. Other people who were in the delegation came from a number of countries across the Arab Muslim world, from Morocco through Tunisia, Egypt, Lebanon, to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. Um, probably the most prominent as a scholar was the head of the Moroccan Muslim Scholars League, which is an appointment under the auspices of the King of Morocco. And that's Dr. Ahmed Abadi, who incidentally is a longtime friend of AJC and a longtime personal friend of mine. Somebody who hadn't had any connection with AJC and who came at significant risk to his own person. Indeed, he has now had a, a death sentence issued against him, is uh, Dr. Mohammed El Husseini of Lebanon. And he has been accused, as of course all of them have been accused, of being quizlings and collaborationists who are undermining the integrity of Islam and allowing all kinds of myths to be propagated by manipulative Jews. <laughs> and so these people were very brave, but especially Husseini coming from Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Al-Issa brought with him a delegation, uh, as you say, of 62 Muslims, including 25 prominent religious leaders from 28 countries on several continents. You were there with them together in the Auschwitz death camp. And one thing I'm wondering is, is there a moment that you can share with us that was particularly affecting uh, as you went through this camp that I'm sure you've visited a number of times, but as you went through this camp for the first time with this kind of a delegation? There were so many moments, but probably the most remarkable because it was in a sense so unexpected was the moment when after the memorial prayers which we recited there both Jewish prayers and Muslim prayers the Muslims under Dr. Alisa's leadership held their afternoon prayers and bowed down and prostrated themselves 
in a sense that was not just a matter of them exercising their obligation, but a sense that they were in prayerful solidarity with the Jewish people, with our suffering. And you could see on their faces that this was not just a horror show for them. It was a sense of real understanding of the pain and suffering of the Jewish people with which they really, I think, expressed their solidarity. And Alisa was very strong in terms of his words the next day, especially in the synagogue in Warsaw, where we had a, a service, uh, which he and I spoke there at that service, and uh, where our president of AJC, Harriet Schleifer, presented him with a token of our esteem, where he said that those that deny the Holocaust are, in effect, continuing the work of the perpetrators and that any kind of anti-Semitism was not only incompatible with Islam, but was as condemnable as the atrocities. Mm -hmm. Right. So you mentioned that the group didn't kind of disband after Auschwitz, but that the next day you were all together again in Warsaw. You spent time visiting museums, visiting and praying in mosques and in synagogues. Why not just do the Auschwitz mission? That was kind of the centerpiece of it all, but you decided to travel to Warsaw as well and spend another day together. What was the rationale there? Well, indeed, the visit to Auschwitz would have been justified in and of itself. But we were seeking to do more than simply bring these people to recognize the horrors of the Shoah and to receive their expression of solidarity and repudiation of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. And the purpose of this is also to forge bonds of understanding and of fraternity between the Muslim and Jewish leadership in the world, and therefore to see ways not only of advancing our bilateral relationship, but ways in which we can work together for the betterment of humanity. So getting to know one another is part of that process. So that was really important. And then in the evening, we celebrated a Shabbat dinner at the Royal Castle, where in addition to the delegations, we had religious and civic leaders, including political leaders of Poland, gathered together where we were able to celebrate. And therefore, there was a sense of sharing, not just of being aware of the other, being aware of the other's tragedy, but of a sense of fraternity and of brotherhood. Mm -hmm. One thing that you mentioned earlier, David, was that there are critics of Saudi Arabia and critics of the Muslim World League who are somewhat skeptical um, of their participation in this. People will say to us at AJC that, you know, we didn't find a good partner, that these are folks who have been involved in spreading a fundamentalist and sometimes anti-Semitic religious ideology. What do we say to those people? You know, why is the Muslim World League the right partner for us? I would say to them, that's precisely the kind of target, if you like, the audience that we need to go for. It's no great chokhmah, it's no great achievement to be able to preach to the converted or to be able to take those who are liberal critics of, a, if you like, an institutional orthodoxy and to work together with them. I'm not saying, God forbid, that we should avoid them. Of course, many of these are wonderful people. But the achievement, if we would have, in the, in the 60s or, and before that, have said the Catholic Church is inherently anti-Semitic, and until they purify themselves, we will have nothing to do with them, then we wouldn't have had Nostratate. Thank God we didn't say that. We engaged the Christian world, we worked together with the Christian world, and we led to the amazing transformations in terms of Christian teaching towards Jews, Judaism, and Israel. So it's in our interest to engage the hardcore and to be able to transform those who have had prejudices or even may still have certain stigmatized approach. That's what we need to change. That's our responsibility. And if we don't engage those elements, we fail in our task and our responsibility as AJC and as Jews. Mm -hmm. This trip was not about Israel. It was not about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
conflict aside from perhaps your own presence, uh, you being a, a citizen of Israel who lives in Jerusalem, it doesn't seem like Israel was mentioned much. Do you think there are any implications for Muslim-Jewish relations with regard to Israeli-Palestinian relations as an outcome of this? There certainly are, but we can't run before we can walk. Again, let me just say that, as you pointed out, there were people there from many countries, countries where we don't have diplomatic relations and countries where we do have diplomatic relations. There was a very important representative from Al-Azhar, the Association of Islamic Universities from Egypt. Egypt is a country which Israel does have diplomatic relations with, but where the society is still very hostile. An example of the, the, count, the counterbalance to that is, uh, the, um, is Morocco, which is a country with which we, Israel, do not have diplomatic relations with, but where there are actually quite close connections and collaboration and where many Moroccan leaders visit Israel and Israelis visit Morocco. But now with regards to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is coming out of as I say, a very rigid cocoon. And it's already moved a great deal of a distance with regards to Israel, as been very much following the leadership of the uh, Emirates. And uh, El Issa is, as we mentioned before, an appointment of the highest leadership of the monarchy, of the king and the crown prince. And therefore, any action he does is obviously with their authorization and with their approval. So the fact that he is connected with Jewish organizations it is known for its Israel advocacy, and that, that there was, if I may be so bold as to describe myself, a prominent Israeli rabbi within the group, obviously has ramifications in that regard. Uh, they don't want to court too much fire. As it is, we can see there's already a great deal of criticism coming from certain radical elements. So this is a progression, but there's no question that it has relevance with regards to Israel in terms of future developments. But again, let me also add that if there is no movement on a political front, it's always going to be difficult for them to be able to go the extra mile. Mm -hmm. One last question, David, before we close. You mentioned the tremendous strides that AJC and others were able to cultivate in Catholic-Jewish relations in the 20th century. Now in the 21st century, and you know, maybe not over the whole you know, 80 years to come, but, but just over the next 10 years— where do you want to see the AJC Muslim World League relationship, and dare I say the relationship of Jews and Muslims around the world, where do you want to see that relationship go 10 years from now? There's a fundamental paradigm difference between our relationship with the Muslim world and our relationship with the Christian world. The Muslim world historically never delegitimized us as the Christian world did. With the Christian world, we had to go from a situation of where there were fundamental theological prejudices that had to be overcome, and that led to, a, if you like, an internal theological revolution. The irony is that the Muslim world historically never had those kind of prejudices towards the Jews. I'm not saying everything was picnic and hunky-dory all the time, but there was never any theological-rooted prejudice. On the contrary, the approach towards the people of the book is essentially a positive one, as contradistinction to other peoples or to idolatrous nations. The irony is, in the modern times, those diseases that had been part and parcel of Christian society throughout most of history have been purified from within Christendom, but have been now undergone a kind of an Islamification in which all these negative myths and ideas about Jews have entered into the Muslim world. So here our task is a rather different task. It's purification of these 
poisons that have entered into the Muslim world much more recently. And the more we can create relationships and mutual respect, the easier we can cure these poisons much more easily than you can bring about a theological transformation that had to take place within the Catholic Church and with most of the Christian world. So I actually think that once we're engaged in this, the achievements can be very rapid and very dramatic. And I look forward in 10 years to very close collaboration between AJC and Muslim organizations and the Jewish Muslim world at large. But I say again, the caveat that I mentioned before, a lot of that will depend upon what happens in Israel and the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. Obviously, the idea that the Palestinian conflict is at the heart of instability in the Middle East is nonsense. But what is true is that it serves as a lightning rod for all the kind of complexes and hang-ups that exist within the Muslim world to do with the whole relationship to the West and to the Western world, and it's a very complex one. And therefore, if we can move ahead on the Israeli-Palestinian front, that will have ramifications of enormous consequence with regards to the Muslim world at large. Well, David, thank you so much for your leadership on this issue um, and on interreligious relations in general, and thank you for sharing your experiences and your thoughts with us today. Thank you, Sefi. All the best. Last week, the English translation of the only novel written in Auschwitz was released. Last Stop Auschwitz, My Story of Survival from Within the Camp by Eddie DeWind was written in the days immediately following the Nazi death camp's liberation 75 years ago. Scrawled in pencil in a notebook used by SS officers, the book gives a third-person account of the atrocities there based on true life events. It is raw, unedited, and perhaps because of the circumstances under which it was written, shattering and real. Eddie DeWind passed away in 1987, but since then, his family has pushed to get the book published in its most authentic form. Today, on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I have the tremendous honor to speak with Melcher DeWind, the author's son. Melcher, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell me, when was the first time you read your father's novel? And when was the first time your father mentioned surviving the Holocaust? Perhaps those are two different moments in your life. Well, the, the last one is not one moment, and the first one is also quite hard to answer, because Auschwitz was always there. It mm-hmm. was not something that was told to me on a certain moment. It was like an atmosphere in the house. It was in everything, and also in the things that were not in the house and in the family. So it's it's like something that you grow up with, like a family member. Mm-hmm. And my mother once made a remark that sticks to me. And she said, Auschwitz was always sitting at our kitchen table. And I think that makes quite clear how it was to grow up in a family that had Auschwitz in its middle. Mm -hmm. So it Mm -hmm. was always there. Yeah. You know, your father, a bit about the book for our listeners, your father wrote the novel in the days immediately following the liberation of Auschwitz. And we're actually having this conversation on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. Tell me, was this day a monumental day in your family? Would he hearken back to those days, your mother as well? Or was it just one day like any other? Well, it was always a bit of a difficult day for my father. Mm-hmm. My mother is not Jewish. My father remarried after he divorced from Friedel. He mm-hmm. was in Auschwitz with Friedel. Mm-hmm. And about 12 years after the war, they divorced. And My father remarried with my mother, and with her he got three children. 
And Auschwitz Memorial Day or Holocaust Memorial Day was always a quite a, a bit a tense day because there was a lot of sadness. Mm-hmm. There was grief for the family that was murdered, and there were meetings, kind of meetings where where former Auschwitz prisoners, survivors met. And there was always tension there because of a lot of things that had happened in the war and after the war. Mm-hmm. It's not like everybody who came back was befriends to the others. It was more like a family. People mm-hmm. that survived uh, were like family members. And you know how it is with family members. You will never leave them, but it's hard to love them as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me, you picked up this novel when? When did you discover that your father had written a novel? Um, it was always in the house as well. My father wrote it in a, a book that he took from the SS, and I'll tell you a bit more about that later. And this, it was like a cahier, a notebook, and he wrote a story with a pen in the camp. Mm-hmm. And that that notebook was in our house in a bookshelf or sometimes on the desk. So when did you actually read the book that he had written based on those notes or what he had recorded in Auschwitz? The book, as it is printed now, as it's published now, is exactly what's written in the notebook. So after the Germans left, the Nazis left the camp, two days later he started writing, even before the uh, the Soviet liberators entered the camp. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the book in, I think, only two and a half months or three months. And the text has been literally put into the book. And that was on purpose because my father wanted it to be as realistic as possible. He didn't want people to be able to say, well, this is nonsense what's written there or this is a false memory or whatever. What you're reading when you read Last Stop Auschwitz is exactly what my father wrote down. In his own handwriting, in the ink that he used in, in, in Auschwitz. In his own handwriting, yeah. 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 In Dutch. Okay. So, yeah. And... Um, I first read the book, I think when I was 18, I finished high school and I wanted to start studying history. Mm -hmm. And that had to do with the story of my father and my mother as well. I wanted to understand more what happened in the war and why. And so I decided to start studying history. And my father said, well, you're old enough now. So now you read the book. And I must say that many of the stories in the book I already knew because Uh my father talked quite much about his uh, experiences in Auschwitz, which mm-hmm. was, which is not quite normal. Most people that survived didn't talk much about their experiences, but my father was different in that. Mm. So I knew many of the stories already. What inspired your dad to tell those stories early on, as opposed to other survivors who, who don't talk about their experiences until later? It's a bit of a longer story. The Russian army was approaching Auschwitz quite rapidly and the SS and the other Nazis had to leave in a hurry. And they took with them as many people as possible and they destroyed everything they left behind. Mm -hmm. They blew up the gas chambers and burned all the papers. And they left behind about 8,000 people that were too ill to walk. And they meant to kill those people as well. But the Red Army approached too quick, so they couldn't kill them anymore. They also took my father's wife, Friedel, who was in Auschwitz together with my father. Mm -hmm. And my father was scared. He thought, if I go on these dead marshes, as they're being called later on, I will certainly die. His wife was forced to go. But my father went into hiding with some other people. So he was one of the few that stayed behind. And when he came out of hiding two days later, 
the Nazis had gone and what he saw there and then was even worse than the situation when the Nazis were still there because there was no more food. Mm. People were dying, literally dying everywhere. There were corpses everywhere. It was worse than hell. Mm. And my father was a doctor. He wanted to help the people that were dying, but he couldn't. There were no medicines. There was nothing. So he went outside of the camp and he wanted to lay down somewhere and wanted to die. He writes about this in the book as well. And then he remembered what a woman said to him three days before, a woman with a severe head wound that he uh, had been treating. And she said, you have to stay alive. Tell everyone what's happened here so that everyone will know and that it can never happen again. Yes. And it were those words that gave him the power to stay alive, but it also meant that he had to start writing because he did, in a way, a promise to himself. It was the reason for him to stay alive. The reason that he started writing was the reason that he stayed alive as well. The that same motivation. The, it was the motivation to stay alive. And that is what gives the book this enormous power. You feel in every word, and every sentence, you feel this urge to tell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, um, well, he was in the fields and he remembered these words. He went back to the camp and went to a barrack of the SS where they kept their stuff. And he found a notebook, which was actually an SS notebook, the kind of notebook that they used to write down who had to go to the cast chambers, uh, etc. And he took such a book, an empty book, and he started writing. And that makes it, in a way, a victory book. Mm -hmm. And it was the same motivation that led him to write that also led him to share his stories while you were young. With me, you mean. Right, or, and with, with everyone, family. really. But you talked about how he was different from other survivors and that he did share and talk about his yeah. experiences. Because he wrote the stories already in Auschwitz, he had put them on paper. It was easier for him to talk about them about the stories than for other survivors. Oh, yeah. That Besides that, he was a psychoanalyst and he started treating people with severe war traumas directly after the war when mm -hmm. he came back in Holland. Mm -hmm. And he had one lesson in mind, and that is that it is always worse to let children have their fantasies than to tell them the truth. However hard the truth is, it's always less fearful and scaring than the fantasies of children. Mm -hmm. So... He told a lot, and he did this in a quite special way. It was very emotional for him, so he told us a lot. I do wonder what you thought of the English translation of this novel. I know that it had been published in Dutch for many years, and your father actually rejected some publishers' attempts to have him rewrite and polish up uh, the book. And he really wanted to keep it very raw, very authentic. I'm curious if you feel like the English translation preserved that authenticity. Uh, well, my father died in 87, and it has been translated just half a year ago mm -hmm. by David Colmer, the translator. Mm -hmm. And I think David Colmer did a wonderful job because what he tried to do when you translate, often translators try to make things as beautiful as possible in the new language. But what David Colmer tried is to stick as close as possible to the original. Mm -hmm. So he used, if my father wrote down wrong words, which he did, I mean, I was in the, in the camp and he, uh -huh. he wrote very instinctively. He wrote it in just three months, the book, and he didn't start again, just wrote on and wrote on every night. And during daytime, he was working as a doctor in the camp, trying mm -hmm. to, people to survive, to stay alive. 
And in the evening he wrote. And what the translator has tried is to catch this spirit, this originality, because that makes the book different than any book that has ever been published about Auschwitz or any other camp. You know, and I, I have to say the English is all I know, so I don't know what the Dutch, how the Dutch reads or, you know, what the difference is in the word choices. But to me, it was an incredibly moving, incredibly raw, and that really is the best word um, to describe it. Um, so I'm glad that yeah. you believe that the English is an authentic translation from the Dutch. It's definitely a lovely account of relationships, the human relationships and the power of that. And I know that after reading the book, um, I think a lot of people will agree with me that they miss the characters and they can certainly identify with just the loss, the sheer loss of life. And yes, it definitely is the kind of book that you internalize and remember forever. Melcher, thank you so much for sharing your father's work and for sharing this conversation with us today. Thank you for listening to me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Yaakov Schwartz, the deputy Jewish world editor at the Times of Israel. Yaakov, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Manya. Hi, Sefi. Thanks for having me on. This might come as a bit of a surprise, but my Shabbat table conversation this week may skew a bit controversial. It'll probably throw my family and honestly, hopefully it won't cause any coronaries, but I'm going to ask a serious question, which is whether we as Jews put too much emphasis on visiting the sites of former concentration camps. So this past Monday was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and people came in from all over the world to visit the former Nazi death camps of Auschwitz-Birkenau and commemorate the occasion. There were tourists and delegations of survivors and trips sponsored by Jewish organizations. And on the uh, actual anniversary of the liberation on the 27th, there was a huge ceremony with all kind of politicians and dignitaries and whatnot. And I was here to report on how all these totally different groups honored the memory of the 1.1 million Jews and the many, many other prisoners from different backgrounds who were murdered at this place. Actually, last Thursday, I was also invited to accompany uh, an historic interfaith delegation between the AJC and the Muslim World League that may have been a real breakthrough in Jewish-Muslim and Israeli-Arab relations. I saw how the two groups were interacting, and from where I was standing, it really looked like a breakthrough. And I won't make any buts about it. It was an honor to be able to cover these events as part of my job, and it was more touching on a personal level than I want to admit. At the same time, I stepped onto tour bus after tour bus full of bright-eyed people wearing lanyard name tags almost always before 8 a.m. And, and yeah, four or five early morning Auschwitz trips in the same week in January can take their toll. And after a while, we'd pull into the Auschwitz parking lot. And yes, of course, the camp has a parking lot. And then you get off the bus. And it, it doesn't matter if you're accompanying a Saudi delegation or Touch your heart to the core Holocaust survivors, which, uh, by the way, spoiler alert, I haven't met a survivor this week who wasn't awe-inspiring. But still, you see the same thing. You see a few people smoking cigarettes out front. There's a gift shop. There's a restaurant that smells like delicious pizza. And then you get in line, shuffle into the camp, 
collect a headset to listen to your guide, and, and you step through that nearly mythical Arbeit macht Freigate, and, and you see some brick buildings and some ruins and some stone memorials and some young people crying into selfie sticks. I know it's judgmental, but I can't help it. It actually reminded me a little bit of the first time I visited the Western Wall. I was so prepared to have this feeling, I don't know, this spiritual feeling or something. And then I got there and I just saw stones. I've had spiritual moments at the Western Wall since then. But for me, that's because I live in Israel and I can go there all the time. And I don't really control when that stuff happens. The truth is, seeing Auschwitz and Birkenau didn't have nearly as much of an impression on me as did growing up with people who had gone into those camps and come out alive. In my synagogue when I was a kid, half the women and men there had numbers on their arms and sometimes, usually as some kind of a moral lesson to get me to behave, they'd share with me their experiences. When I compare the effect that the first-hand testimony had on me with the effect that the brick huts had on me, I've got to say that it's our privilege as Jews to have access, for as long as we will, to the oral tradition of that generation. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this matches the same misora or tradition that has carried our culture through the millennia. It's important for the world to come and see the things humanity is capable of, so hopefully it doesn't happen again. But before you hop on a plane to come visit these places, you might just think about looking over to the older person sitting next to you in shul. How about you, Manya? I mean, you raise a really good point. There are still people out there that don't believe this happened, can't fathom it. And I think you're right. For non-Jewish audiences or people who haven't had the benefit of hearing testimonies, I think it is beneficial to preserve that. So I have had the Holocaust on my mind, obviously, but something of a, of a lighter nature. I've had the British royals on my mind lately, um, not the adventures of Harry and Meghan or the scandalous news about Prince Andrew, uh, but the other royals, Kate and William. I recently recalled for my kids my very spontaneous decision to book a trip to Europe back in 2011 so I could see their wedding. I watched on the Jumbotron screen in London and scaled a wall to perch quite precariously on a windowsill as the family came by in their horse-drawn carriages. It was truly a fairy tale. And in hindsight, the fairy tale was mine. Uh, I no longer have the luxury of dropping everything to fly to London to see a wedding, but I digress. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the latest project by amateur photographer Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge. She contributed two portraits to the Royal Photographic Society's exhibit of photos of Holocaust survivors with their grandchildren. One of survivor Stephen Frank with his grandchildren, Maggie and Trixie. She poses Frank holding a tin pot, which is both a domestic object and a memento of suffering. An accompanying statement notes that his mother brought the pot to Reisenstadt and used it to cobble together small meals. She also photographs survivor Yvonne Bernstein with her granddaughter, Chloe. And Bernstein shows her German identification card to her granddaughter in the photograph, but its text and the Nazi symbols are hidden from view. The exhibit is part of the commemorations for the 75th anniversary of the end of the Holocaust. The Duchess of Cambridge was invited to take these photographs with a group of photographers. She's quite talented, and the Duchess said, I wanted to make the portraits deeply personal to Yvonne and Stephen, a celebration of family and the life that they have built since they both arrived in Britain in the 1940s. 
The families brought items of personal significance with them, which are included in the photographs. It was a true honor to have been asked to participate in this project, and I hope in some way Yvonne and Stephen's memories will be kept alive as they pass the baton to the next generation. Isn't that what it's all about, passing the baton to the next generation? And as you said, Yaakov, these people will not be around forever. Their testimonies will not be available to us forever. And so passing the baton to the next generation, educating our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren about the atrocities of the Holocaust, even if you can't drop everything and fly to Europe, either to see a wedding in London or to see Auschwitz, it's really important to pass these stories on and preserve them in every way we can, be it through our chronicles as journalists or museums or just telling stories to our grandchildren and to the next generation. And that is what we will be talking about at our Shabbat table. What about you, Sefi? Prime Minister Netanyahu was indicted this week after years of investigation and months of uncertainty. Would the attorney general actually be able to indict a sitting prime minister? Would the Knesset grant him immunity from prosecution? Ultimately, those questions resolved themselves, and Attorney General Avichai Mandelblit, who was appointed to the role by Netanyahu, filed charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust in Jerusalem District Court on Tuesday. Now, Israeli legal experts suggest that the trial could take around three years, making the American impeachment and Senate trial of President Trump look positively speedy. I'm not here to offer a comment about Netanyahu's indictment other than to say that it is important in any democracy that no one, not even the prime minister or president, is above the law. But there is one small thing that got to me about all this. I hadn't previously seen an Israeli indictment document before or a ktav ishum as it's called in Hebrew, but I was struck upon reading this one that it doesn't refer to the accused by their first name, middle name, last name but rather by their full Jewish name, in much the same way that a Jewish person would be called up to the Torah for an aliyah. So in charging the prime minister, the state accused Binyamin ben Benzion Netanyahu, Benjamin, the son of Benzion Netanyahu. As grim as the subject is, and no one in any country should be excited at the prospect of their elected leaders going on trial, there is something beautiful about doing things Jewishly in the Jewish state. It's why I like that Israeli streets are named for Jewish heroes, that Israeli money is decorated with the faces of Jewish writers, that formal occasions in Israel are determined by the Jewish calendar. And now I know, when the state of Israel believes that someone has committed crimes, it calls you to account with your Jewish name. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for having me on, guys. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 